Well, again, good morning. Thanks for joining us at Prairie View Christian Church, whether you're here in person or whether you're watching on the live stream. We're glad that you're watching. Now, last week we began reading the story of Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. Elijah was a prophet if there ever was one, in a time and place that desperately needed one. For several generations, the northern kingdom of Israel had been sliding into idolatry and sin. In Elijah's day, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were exhibit A of this moral and spiritual corruption. But the truth is that much of Israel had followed in their footsteps as well. But then at the right time, God sent a prophet. Elijah was uniquely called and uniquely enabled by God to expose and confront Israel's sin, to urge them to repent. And Elijah does this in particularly spectacular fashion in today's passage, 1 Kings 18. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. Feel free to follow along on the screen if you're here. And if you're at home, we encourage you to follow along as well. But before we do any reading, let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for another week of gathering together. Thank you that we were able to meet last week and things went relatively smoothly. Thank you that we're here again this week. Uh, that as far as we know, everybody's feeling good, everyone's feeling healthy, uh, and for that, we're grateful. Uh, in the past, we took that for granted, but maybe we don't take that quite as much for granted as these days, as we did back then. And Lord, thank you that last week went smoothly. I pray that this week would go smoothly as well, uh, as we learn how to do this new form of Sunday morning, uh, this new order of worship, even if there are bumps in the road, even if it's a little uncomfortable or disorienting for us. I pray that we would get used to it, that we would get better at it, but that more importantly, it would be honoring to you. Uh, that's the point of Sunday morning, whether it's totally back to normal or whether it's awkward and uncomfortable for us. The point of Sunday morning is honoring to you. And so I pray that that service would do just that, that it would honor you. Thank you for this passage that we get to read. Thank you for these people in this place. Thank you for those at home who are live streaming uh, and Lord, again, we just pray that we would continue to get a little bit closer to gathering together again as a church, but that you would bless our efforts to keep doing ministry in this meantime. Again, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for Christ. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first prophetic task that Elijah accomplished was pronouncing God's judgment upon Israel. We saw in 1 Kings 17 last week that this judgment took the form of a devastating drought. And this drought served several purposes. Number one, it established Elijah's legitimacy as a prophet sent from God. Number two, it punished Israel for their abandonment of God. And then number three, it meant to draw Israel back to worship of God and dependence upon God. And as we pick up in chapter 18 today, that same drought is ongoing. In fact, it's been over three years since the drought began. So you can imagine that by now people are getting desperate. That leads us to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go! 
show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. That's a great start, isn't it? The drought is ending. Israel is finally getting some much needed relief. But not so fast. Before the rain falls, God commands Elijah to confront King Ahab. God wants to make sure that Ahab, Jezebel, everyone else in Israel knows exactly who is ending that drought. We fast forward to see the confrontation in verses 17 of 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 17 says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, another false god who is closely associated with Baal, who eat at Jezebel's table. This is Elijah's Old Testament way of saying, meet me on the playground flagpole at three o'clock. So what we have here is a good old fashioned showdown on top of Mount Carmel. This confrontation will take the form of a contest of sorts. It will be a battle between the gods. In one corner, we will have Baal, the supposed god of storms. The God Israel has chosen to worship. Along with him, you will have 850 false prophets, along with the king and queen of Israel. And then in the other corner, we will have Yahweh, the one true God who Israel has abandoned, all but forgotten. Mount Carmel is the perfect spot for this match. Because you'll have Phoenicia on one side, which was Baal's home turf. You'll have Israel on the other side, the promised land of God. You can almost picture this as a Wild West duel. The tension is rising. And you know, to the average onlooker, it might not seem like a fair fight. 850 versus 1. But the drama culminates in one of the most incredible stories In the entire Bible. We pick up starting in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, and left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, And the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. I told Javen and Nolan this story a few nights ago, and they really liked that part. (laughs) Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And Elijah said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The people of Israel came into this battle unwilling to pick a side. They couldn't choose between worshiping Baal and worshiping Yahweh. So they had convinced themselves that they could do both. But Elijah refers to that as limping between two opinions. The Israelites wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to sit on the fence. They wanted to have it both ways. But Elijah makes it clear that this cannot continue. Why not? Well, think back to the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments. 
Right after God freed the Israelites from Egypt, he says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So Elijah is forcing the people, forcing Ahab, forcing Jezebel to get off the fence. He's forcing them to pick a side, Baal or Yahweh, because he can't worship both. Now, the false prophets tried their hardest to win that battle. You have to give them an A for effort. They ranted. They raved. They literally poured out their blood, sweat, and tears, trying to convince Baal to send fire from heaven to the point of exhaustion. But I love the way the results of all their efforts are described in verse 29. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal, the supposed god of storms, could not send fire from heaven. And you know, come to think of it, that shouldn't be all that surprising. He hadn't been able to send rain for the past three years. But then Elijah steps into the ring for his turn. He even stacks the deck against himself and his God. He repairs the altar of God that had been destroyed. He builds a trench and fills it with water, soaks the wood for the offering, and drenches the animal sacrifice, none of which was required by the rules. And Elijah does not rant, does not rave, does not pour out his blood. He offers a short and simple prayer. He asks God not just to send fire from heaven, not just to win the contest, but he asks God to turn the hearts of sinful Israel back to him. And then the lightning strikes. The fire comes down. It wasn't a stroke of luck. It wasn't a favorable forecast. It wasn't a sleight of hand. It was an undeniable act of the one true God. As a result, God is worshipped. Elijah is vindicated. The people repent. And the false prophets are slaughtered. Now, as we said earlier, it's a spectacular story. Arguably one of the most dramatic in all of Scripture. It's particularly amusing when Elijah mocks Baal and mocks the false prophets. I've been saying for a long time now that we need to have a deeper appreciation for the biblical roots of potty humor. But, you know, all joking aside, the ridiculousness of Elijah's taunts corresponds to the ridiculousness of Baal. Baal is a fraud. And he does not belong in the same conversation as the one true God. And while that part of the story may be funny, the truth is that idolatry is no laughing matter. It is a sin against the rightful God of the universe that invites eternal condemnation. It is an act of cosmic treason. And there's nothing funny about that. 
But if we're being honest, while the story may be amusing at certain parts, it's also a little bit disturbing. If you think more deeply about Elijah's jokes at Baal's expense, you may find your modern sensibilities offended at the thought of mocking someone else's God. We live in a society that prizes respect, inclusion, and coexisting with those who worship different gods than we do. But the biblical record does not hesitate to mock false gods. In Isaiah 41, we read that false gods are a delusion, nothing, empty wind. Jeremiah chapter 10 puts it perhaps most famously. We read there. Hear the word of the Lord that speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree is cut from the forest and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. So having a Christmas tree is sinning, in case you're wondering. I'm just kidding. That's not really a sin. But some people read this passage and call that a sin. That's not the point of the passage. Verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Later in the passage, we read the idols described as worthless, a work of delusion. And Jeremiah comparing the prophets to scarecrows. A scarecrow might look scary, but really, it's nothing. And if you are scared of a scarecrow, that tells us that you're bird-brained. That's the idea of Jeremiah 10. But, you know, in our day and age, we can't help but find Elijah's mocking of Baal a little bit shocking. Combine that with the violent slaughter of the false prophets, which strikes us as harsh and intolerant. And we may find this passage just as disturbing as it is amusing. So what do we do with those disturbing parts of the story? Well, a few thoughts. With regard to Elijah's mocking of Baal, I do not believe this passage gives us an excuse to demean or insult those who may hold different religious beliefs than we do. Yeah, Elijah may have done it in this passage, but remember that you're not Elijah. And if anything, I worry that we're likely tempted to go too far in the other direction. We're tempted to show so much respect And so much honor for the religious beliefs of others that we fail to properly distinguish our God, the one true God, from their God. False, imposters, delusions, empty wind. If anything, most of us are not tempted to be too rude in our words about false gods. We're tempted to be too polite. Most of us are not so much tempted to be too brash in our insistence that there is only one God worthy of worship. We're tempted to be too compromising, maybe even cowardly. 
And, you know, really, in the eternal scheme of things, if we're concerned about coming across as rude or cruel, it is far more cruel to let someone go on believing a lie and worshiping a false god than it is to expose that false god for what it really is. Worthless. Now, as for the prophets of Baal, the other part of the story that may disturb us. The prophets of Baal were not random strangers who believed something different from Elijah. Like the non-believer that you and I pass on the street or work with in the office or see at school. These false prophets were wolves in sheep's clothing who had intentionally infiltrated God's covenant people, broken God's covenant commands, and led God's people astray. That's why the prophets are treated the way they're treated. They're treated the way God called false prophets to be handled in Israel. Punishment by death. The truth is that there was no room for idolatry within God's covenant people in the Old Testament. The same way there is no room for idolatry within the church today. Now, again, these are parts of the story that we simply have to wrestle with. Once we get past the shallow, sanitized Sunday school or vacation Bible school versions. When it comes down to it, the Bible isn't always as tame or as domesticated as we might like it to be. That's because the God who gave it to us isn't as tame, isn't as domesticated as we sometimes wish he would be. He demands our worship and he will share it with no one And nothing else. Because he alone is worthy of it. But as we begin to wrap up, what are the biggest lessons that Christians might take from this very amusing, but also slightly disturbing Old Testament story? Well, number one is obvious. This passage teaches us about the exclusivity of God. We believe in and worship the one true God and him alone, exclusively. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is none greater than him. There is none beside him. Not Baal, not Asherah, not anyone else. John Calvin writes, nothing which belongs to him is to be transferred to any other. Our adoration, our trust, our invocation, our thanksgiving. Not a particle of his glory is to be withheld. Everything belonging to him must be reserved to him entirely. Again, no one else. Nothing else. No other so-called God. Our insistence that there is only one true God and that he alone deserves our worship has offended those in the past who worshipped many gods. It offends those now who insist that there is no God. And it offends those somewhere in between who believe that, you know, it just doesn't matter. But this belief cannot change if we are to remain Christian. Like the people on top of Mount Carmel, there is no other option for us. 
We must choose. And second, of course, this passage teaches us about the futility of idols. You know, the people in this room might not be tempted to worship a deity like Baal or Asherah. We may not be tempted to bow down before a statue or an altar. But make no mistake, we have no trouble inventing new forms of idolatry and new gods to worship. Martin Luther wrote, What is it to have a god? What is god? The answer, A god is that to which we look for all good, and in which we find refuge in every time of need. That to which your heart clings. That to which your heart entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. By that definition, if Martin Luther is right, the list of potential false gods that we are tempted to worship is endless. Even when we praise God with our lips, what do we really look to for good? What do we really look to for refuge? What do our hearts really cling to? To what do our hearts really entrust themselves? If it is something other than the one true God, we're not any different from those Israelites sitting on the fence on top of Mount Carmel, trying to have our cake and eat it too, Worshipping Yahweh with our mouths, but giving our hearts to the silent, impotent, non-existent Baal. The false gods that we are tempted to worship cannot save us from our sin. They cannot and will not love us. Only the one true God can do that. And thanks be to God that he has done that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The false gods and the false prophets that tempt us to stray from the one true God can make all kinds of promises. But they will always fall short. Like Baal, the god of storms who could not send rain. You can rant, you can rave, you can pour out your blood, sweat, and tears for those idols, but they will not hear you. They will not pay attention. At the end of 1 Kings 18, after those false prophets are slaughtered, the sky opens up, the rain falls, the drought ends, God keeps his word, the judgment is over. The people have repented. The one true God heard. The one true God delivered. And by faith in Christ, God still does that today. So abandon your idols. Worship him and worship him alone. Stop limping between two opinions. Serve, love, and praise your God. The real God. The true God, the one who does not demand that you pour out your blood to try to get him to act, but rather the God who poured out his blood for you on the cross. He is the only God worthy of our worship. So may we worship him completely and wholeheartedly.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you are the one true God, that when we pray, we do not have to hope that you hear us. We do not have to have our fingers crossed that you hear us. We do not have to rant and rave and come up with all kinds of fancy words or long-winded prayers or try to twist your arm to convince you to do what we want you to do. You are not like the false gods. You are not like Baal. You are not like Asherah. You are not like any of the other false gods that men and women have invented and created and imagined. You are the one true God, and you alone are worthy of our worship. And so, Lord, we worship you. We ask that by your grace we would learn to stop worshiping the false gods, whatever they might be in our day and age. It's probably not a statue. It's probably not an altar. It's success. It's wealth. It's power. It's approval. It's security. It's all these things that... We think we can find somewhere else, but Lord, ultimately they're empty promises. So Lord, help us to worship you and you alone. Help us to get off the fence, abandon our idols, and give ourselves completely over to you, exclusively to you. Again, Lord, we honor you, we praise you, we thank you for Christ's broken body and shed blood the one who's made it possible for us to call you our Father, the one who's reconciled us to you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.